0: This is KJZZ, your news and information station. We're on air, online, and on your phone. I'm Tiara Vianne. Let's look now at this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. And thanks so much for listening. For the week of June 5th, 2023, Scottsdale has long been one of the most popular destinations for snowbirds, retirees, golfers, baseball fans, and other tourists seeking warm temperatures and desert landscapes. But as KJZZ's Phil Latzman tells us, it's more recently become party central for bachelorettes, and a lucrative cottage industry has been springing up around all that revelry.
1: It's time to party on pedals with the girls.
2: All right, buddy, we're going to start pedaling. Here we go, let's go. Pedal, 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 pedal. This
1: has become an all too familiar sight and sound in Old Town Scottsdale. A 14 seat bike piloted by a driver filled with women celebrating an upcoming nuptial.
3: The bachelorette parties have really helped grow our business. Um, I would say during the spring season, um, we're probably doing 150 bachelorette parties a week or so, at least, out of out of over
1: over 200 groups so i mean bring them on we we like having them here that's robert mayer president and founder of arizona party bike those bars on wheels that carouse around old town
3: they're they're here to have fun you know they they most likely want to consume alcohol they want to be seen they want to get out there afterward they're going to go out to dinner they're going
1: to go they're going to go to a club and they're going to need some help arranging all that fun. That's where Casey Holman comes in.
3: We're the number one bachelorette party planning company in Scottsdale, so through our website you can book a number of services like decorating and kitchen stocking, the party bike, ATV tours, VIP nightlife, really everything. We really try to create a one-stop shop for
1: everything that they need. Holman is a former tech executive who founded Scottsdale Bachelorette back in 2018. I just saw the bachelorettes coming and I said, well, hey, I'm local. I have a lot of great
3: friends that are, that are women and I could probably help make that you know, planning experience a lot less stressful and a lot better than if they were to try to do it on their own.
1: He then quit his day job when business
3: took off. This year we're on track to do about a thousand decor setups. Um, so each week, like last week, we had our most setups ever, which was 40 groups that had booked us. Um, and our website itself is getting about twenty to 25,000 visitors a month. Why has Scottsdale become this headquarters for bachelorette parties? Um, I think it's a combination of the weather and also just how much Scottsdale has progressed over the last couple years in terms of all the amazing nightlife and all the amazing restaurants. But
1: there's another major reason, says mayor.
3: The bachelorette contingent was kind of growing over the years. By 2018, 2019, you really started to see it take shape. But then after COVID is when it
1: all really, it really got crazy. And that's because Arizona and Scottsdale did not have the type of COVID restrictions in place that other destinations did. The Batch App, which calls itself the top bachelorette party planning platform for groups, says Scottsdale is now a top destination for these festive gatherings, second only to Nashville. Mike Petrakis, the CEO of the Batch App, says they've helped arrange over 11,000 bachelorette parties alone in Scottsdale this year.
3: Scottsdale is our number two location in our marketplace. We have 22 different cities, right? Nashville has traditionally been the big winner throughout the 2010s era. Scottsdale, you know, 2020 and beyond, especially in the last like two years, has really created a a name for itself.
1: Sarah Sprague is the Batch App COO and she explains the reasons besides COVID that Scottsdale has become so popular.
0: People love a desert moment. So it really is the backdrop is beautiful and it can serve any type of people so you want a party there are the day parties in old town you want a spa day there are the spas you want to do outdoorsy stuff you can go to the desert so you can mix and match an itinerary for all types of parties and get the little pieces you want and most importantly have great photos
1: and that adds up according to their research the average bachelorette party group will spend over ten thousand dollars bringing potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in extra revenue to the area each year and words spread quickly to these happy visitors ready to ride the party bike for the bride-to-be.
4: Yeah, it's warm, there's pools, there's a lot of stuff to do. It's a centrally, lo- not centrally, but everybody can get there pretty easy. No one's gonna turn down sunny Scottsdale when, I mean, I live in North Dakota, so weather is not nice there. This is definitely one of like the party places where like last weekend, one of my friends also had their bachelorette party here, so definitely recommend this place. But it's
1: not for everyone.
4: I think I would choose something more, more like, water destination, like like a Havasu or something, or even the river where we're from, it's just more scenic. Like the, the desert is not as scenic.
1: Like it or not, it's become part of the scenery in Old Town Scottsdale. As party bikes roam the streets and transform the West's most Western town into the West's most bachelorette friendly town. In Scottsdale, Phil Latzman, KJCC News. Cheers, you guys.
0: In business news, Arizona's housing market has been booming in recent years, but now the state is going to start limiting some development in areas that rely solely on groundwater. What will that mean for growth in the valley? Catherine Davis-Young took a look.
4: A lot of new construction is happening on the outer edges of the valley, and those areas could be the most impacted by the new rule. So developers may now see more competition for space within cities where water rights are more secure. But land use and zoning attorney Adam Baugh says infill development comes with challenges.
5: There's a built-in environment already, neighbors around you, street limitations, green and drainage considerations, utility access. There's a reason why there's some of the last sites left over.
4: That could create a need for legislation to change zoning rules, says longtime developer and director of ASU's real estate program Mark Stapp.
1: We're going to have to stop and think about how we're going to continue to develop.
4: Stapp says limiting some development on the periphery of the valley could also compound issues of affordability in Arizona where there's already a housing shortage. But he thinks rules to make development more sustainable will ultimately be good for Arizona's economy. Even
1: though there will be some players in this marketplace that will be hurt by it, the overall good of the metropolitan area is really what we should be focused on. And I think that's what's happening here.
4: Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this
0: is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. From KJZZ Original Productions, time now for something a little offbeat. Here is the show series we're calling Collections.
1: Janet Trailer's collection of ancient apothecary and medicine bottles is kept in an old wooden ammunition box under the grand piano in her Midtown Phoenix home. Her collection came to her already completed and filled with memories. It's a gift from her late father with whom she collected these blue and green and clear glass containers when she was a child. KJZZ contributor Robert Palo visited Trailer to learn more.
5: So I collect because the things that I collect spark joy. It just happens to be that a lot of things spark joy for me, <laughs> so I'm not a minimalist. But I also think that we collect because it's, it's a representation of times past, and it's intellectually interesting to see how people lived and to see the artifacts of those lives. I ended up with this great stash of bottles by being the daughter of an inveterate collector of odd Items, But at that time, this was in the early 1960s, and the family entertainment for a family that had limited resources included sort of spelunking, not in caves, but in the mountains, and in particular in the abandoned mining dumps around Buena Vista. And my dad was an outdoorsman, not only an outdoorsman, but had an old Willie's Army-type jeep. And we would go high above Timberline and look at these old mining camps. But closer to home, only one block away from our house was an abandoned dump. And this provided hours of cheap entertainment for our family. My dad would come home from work, you know, unlace his boots and put on another pair of boots, I suppose. And my siblings, sometimes my mom, I sometimes would go and help him. We were his little pack of archaeologists with our little spades. So during that time, my dad and the family collected dozens, dozens, dozens of these bottles. And fast forward after his death, I ended up with his collection, which is now my collection, and most recently has been housed in a wooden ammo case. People come, they see this under my piano, they say, are you waiting for the apocalypse or whatever? And I say, no, 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 it's my dad's bottles. Okay, so here it is. And in here, I don't know how many bottles there are. Everything in this is still wrapped from the time my father put them in here. This is wrapped in a piece of newsprint dated February 4th, 1978. And inside of this, there is a bottle called Philada Dr. D. Jane's Carminative Balsam. It's a skinny little bottle about six inches tall. And this is the first time it's seen the light of day since my dad put it in here. Here's another one. This is an early version of Milk of Magnesia. This is a patent from the U.S. Patent Office, and the date on the bottom is August 21st, 1906. There are a lot of patent medicines, and a lot of them make kind of interesting claims. We have a a remedy for consumption. We have remedies for diarrhea, spelled the old-fashioned way. And separate from the patent medicines were things like Souter's Elegant Flavoring Extract. Oh, that's actually a remedy also. Souter's Elegant Flavoring Extracts Royal Remedy Company in Dayton, Ohio. So these bottles all have their provenance. Here's one from Leadville, Colorado. There's one from Denver, Colorado. They're from large cities, small cities, Chicago. There's one from New Mexico. It's quite a range. They do not have paper labels. The labels were essentially molded into the bottle. So it's this raised lettering that's very tactile and actually quite beautiful. Many of them have a nice kind of a pearlescent look on the exterior just from being buried for many years. I think my dad kept these kinds of things because he had a fascination for ephemera. He had a fascination for how people lived. He had an aesthetic appreciation that maybe wasn't about museum pieces or art in the conventional sense, but he had an aesthetic appreciation for these items.
1: That was Janet Trailer describing her collection of bottles. You can see photos of her collection and hear more in our collection series at kjzz.org.
0: In education news, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, is the form college-bound students and their families use to get federal funds to help pay for school. Arizona's FAFSA completion rates are near the lowest in the country. From our Education Desk, Bridget Dowd reports, the state is taking new steps to change that.
4: The Arizona Board of Regents has launched Arizona College Connect. It's a platform that allows high school counselors to see which students have filled out the FAFSA so they can reach out to those who might need help. A board chair Fred Duval says Arizona is a poorer state that actually has more kids eligible for federal aid, yet FAFSA completion rates remain low.
3: The percentage of counselors per thousand students is among the lowest in the country and I'm sure most of our individual counselors are superb at what they do. There's just not enough of them.
4: Just by finishing the form, a student is 84 percent more likely to enroll in a college or trade school immediately after high school. Duval says that explains why Arizona is also behind in the number of students who pursue higher education. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Here's Lauren Gilger.
2: State-funded psilocybin research is coming to Arizona. The state announced it will award $5 million in grants for researchers to conduct clinical studies on hallucinogenic psilocybin mushrooms for their potential mental health benefits, especially for veterans. And Arizona is just one of many states around the country that's moving toward legalization or decriminalization of some psychedelic drugs. But growing Western interest in these drugs has many indigenous people sounding the alarm. These are plants they have been cultivating relationships with for millennia, they say. And to do it right, Western medicine should create bridges with traditional knowledge holders. Cara Cornelius wrote about it recently for Science, and I spoke with her more about it.
6: It goes back thousands of years, but I think we don't really know because the archaeological record is not clear, especially when it comes to things like mushrooms that don't preserve well in the archaeological record. But we do think that there's there's some evidence that it goes back maybe 5,000 years. It just, it's it's difficult to say, really.
2: And describe for us how, you know, these cultures have traditionally used these kinds of psychedelics. So over these
6: thousands of years, they have cultivated relationships with plants and fungi and learned about them developed rituals surrounding them incorporated them into their culture into their belief systems they often consider them to be relatives like family members and are sacred um, and in a way they've developed a science around them you know learning learning about them as medicines developing that culture around them and learning their effects on people and on the community
2: mm-hmm. so now as we're seeing Arizona fund research into these, as we're seeing sort of a wave of interest in the broader Western culture and in medical communities into psychedelics and the uses that are being shown from them, we're seeing, it sounds like at the same time, some indigenous people speaking out about this and sort of saying, you know, don't forget this side of history here. What are you hearing? What are their main concerns?
6: One of their main concerns is, as I mentioned, they are considered family members and very sacred to these communities. So when these family members themselves, the, the plant medicines and the knowledge surrounding them are taken out of these communities, often in historically they've been taken out of these communities dishonestly or the knowledge has been stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they are being used in ways that are not according to the belief systems of these people. So they're, they're being considered medicines like pills essentially they are being um monetized and often used in in disrespectful ways separated from their sacred sort of container that they have in indigenous societies separated from reciprocity with nature from community and all of these things are deeply hurtful to Indigenous communities, this is what they have told me, mm. that that it's just it's like taking a family member away from a society, using it in a way that it wasn't mentioned. It's disrespectful to the community and it's disrespectful to the plant medicine itself, which is considered sacred.
2: So that's so interesting. There are so many levels to that I want to dig into. One is mm-hmm. the cultural, obviously, and this emotional kind of side of it, which you've talked about. What about ecological concerns that are also out there?
6: Yes. The indigenous communities who use psychedelic plant medicines tend to have this view of nature where everything is reciprocal, where the nature is kin and relatives. And so often the way that they're being used clinically now, or in, in just the underground use, that is completely separated from the connection to nature. Um, and they're considered maybe more like pills to take, yeah. um, or something to use. And so much in, in, in our, you know, non-Indigenous Western societies are things like we consider nature to be resources, something to be used. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not the way it is considered. So that is, again, deeply hurtful.
2: That's so interesting because it's such a different way of thinking about these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about this idea that this is intellectual property and that there may be issues to address there? So Indigenous peoples have been cultivating relationships with, with plants um,
6: over you know millennia and cultivating them learning about them as medicines developing these cultures around them it is a science it is you know indigenous science is, is a different kind of science to western science and therefore they have preserved this knowledge over centuries and consider it many of them consider it to be their intellectual property mm-hmm. and it's not definitive in the in the legal sense yet there there are there are efforts to determine whether this really is intellectual property, and that's still yet to be determined. But the indigenous people that I spoke to say, this is their intellectual property. This is their knowledge base. They developed this knowledge over thousands of years and preserved these traditions. And therefore they have some right to, to this knowledge and non-Indigenous peoples need to ask permission um, in order to use it.
2: Okay, so you interviewed two of the people who are behind a new first-of-its-kind paper that addresses this in an interesting way. They're presenting sort of ethical guidelines for engaging with Indigenous peoples in this kind of psychedelic research and practice. Describe their guidelines for us. Like, are there good ways to go about this for the broader kind of Western culture?
6: So, Mainly, there is reverence and respect for mother nature and the traditions that are surrounding these, respect for indigenous ways of knowing surrounding these plant medicines and accountability, really. And that means partially reconciliation of relationships between indigenous and non-indigenous people. And that means involving indigenous people in psychedelic research in in therapy in institutions and and really having them be the leaders, because I think often the way it is sort of framed amongst people in in healthcare and in, in Western science systems is, oh, maybe Indigenous people should have a seat at the table. And really, it's their table. Hmm. They have developed this knowledge over thousands of years. And really, they should be leading this because they are the ones who've developed the traditions around integrating this into society, integrating this into community and you know individual people and nature. And that is, I think, where we're sort of struggling right now as we develop this in in the US, in Europe, in Australia, where these things are being decriminalized or legalized, Mm -hmm. is how do we integrate this into the community? Well... Indigenous people have been doing this for thousands of years. They know, they they developed this. So really they should be leading this is what they're telling me. And we need to start developing those relationships and healing the relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, having them kind of set the stage for how we can incorporate these into society and have their voices be amplified finally after all this time.
2: All right. We'll leave it there. That is Dwyn Cornelius, a journalist who's covering this issue. Karadwen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for all of the information here. This is interesting reporting. Thank you so So much. In science news, AI assistants
0: like ChatGPT promised to change the future of medicine and improve public access to information. But the authors of a new paper in JAMA Network Open wondered, how do AIs respond to people who are suicidal or dealing with sexual assault or addiction? From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis has the answer.
2: Dr. ChatGPT should be better at answering plain language questions than Dr. Google or Dr. Siri, and it is. While they collectively recognized only 5% of addiction questions, ChatGPT understood 91% of them. But while the AI language model provided expert information culled from websites like the CDC's, its answers to questions about addiction, interpersonal violence, mental health, and physical health failed to point the questioner to crisis resources like addiction or suicide hotlines almost 80% of the time. The authors say such easily integrated referrals could be invaluable, especially for those without access to other forms of help. Nicholas Gerbus, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And finally, in Fronteras News. Three major chemical companies say they've reached a tentative settlement with cities suing them for water contamination caused by PFAS. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports.
2: Pfas are known as forever chemicals because they don't break down naturally. They're used in a host of consumer and industrial products and have been linked to cancer and liver damage. Cities around the U.S. that are suing chemical giants Camores, DuPont, and Corteva say the companies produce products containing Pfas that contaminated drinking water and other parts of the environment. In an article published in Market Screener, the companies say they'll set up a more than one billion dollar settlement as part of the agreement, though it has not been finalized. Tucson is one of dozens of cities in involved in class-action suits against chemical producers. City council member Steve Kazacik says it's still unclear how the new plan will impact the city. Elisa Resnick, KJ, Zizi News, Tson,